In poll after poll, surveys done for social psychologists, those who do such things, when they go and they ask people, what were you just thinking about in the last 10 minutes? Several surveys say Americans think about dying more than sex. I don't believe it either, but that's what they say. (laughs) It is a question that is on everybody's heart and mind, in the background radiation of all of our lives. What does happen when you die? In the words of the old theological group, blood, sweat, and tears. And when I die, and when I die, I just bundle up my coffin because it's cold way down there. Well, the question is, what happens when we die? We thought we would go and take a look at some of our greatest theologians, our Sunday school class, and they're going to answer this for you. What's heaven like? What do you think heaven is going to be like? It's going to be a mansion. A castle. The whole thing is going to be made out of gold. Um, I think um, God stands on a big cloud. It looks like Jesus in it. I think it's going to be like wonderful up there, and I like to be with Jesus. It's going to be pretty, it's going to be gold, and we're going to play lots of board games. Oh, I think it's just going to be like there's going to be a lot of people from the past. And when you die, you he looks at your skin and he hugs you. And my mom and dad are going to go up to heaven too. It's cloudy. It feels weird. And you can fly somewhere in Alaska. Everything will be covered in gold. I don't know. All right, there you got it. Everyone's heaven. I like that last one. Eh, it'll be covered in gold. You know, obviously boring concept to him. Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. It's a statement of thanatology, a statement of death. It was penned as a little limerick about Henry VIII before he died. Even the great, powerful, self-obsessed with power, King Henry, couldn't stop death. When Humpty fell and Humpty broke, all the king's horses and the king's men couldn't reverse it. Do people believe in heaven and hell? Tons of surveys on this. The most recent one that I was reading from uh, Gallup, 79% of Americans believe in an actual heaven. And by the way, they all believe that they will be there. Only 26% believed in a literal hell, and they didn't know one, anyone personally who thought they knew where it's going there. I've been invited to go there before, but <laughs> what does the Bible say about this? One of the great things about aging, I love it, other than, you know, looking and feeling terrible, what's fun about it is that you get to see the same recycled stuff decade after decade. And every five to ten years, somebody's had an NDE, a near-death experience, where they've been to heaven like for a five minutes or an hour and a half or something. One of the things that Carolyn and I learned when we were traveling on our sabbatical through Europe and Australia, never ask someone for directions who's never been there before. Who has gone through death and back physically is one person. Jesus of Nazareth spends more time talking about a literal heaven and a literal hell than anybody else in the Bible. 
The greatest lover of all time, Jesus, the merciful, kind, compassionate one, wasn't trying to terrify. He was giving as much as any physician a warning. Heads up. And this morning, as we take a look at this difficult topic, the one that a lot of people would ask, is there a real heaven or a real hell? I want us to look at it in just three easy steps. First of all, what is a biblical view of death, of thanatology? That's the 50-cent word for it. Everybody has a thanatology. A lot of different religions and other places have that. But what he is describing is what is true for him. Second of all, what happens when we die? Every one of us in here, you're going to put your socks on some morning for the last time. And you're going to breathe your last. And the question is, what happens at that moment? The final thing to take a look at is this stunning assurance and the joy that we have for those who follow Christ. It's not just a question about the good news of the gospel is that there is a heaven waiting and that God is trying to get us to there. The good news of the gospel is that God is trying to get a little bit of heaven in us even right now. You get an advanced withdrawal on the riches that you have in Christ. Well, we have a lot of passages of Scripture to look at this morning. I'd like to begin in Genesis. If you turn with me over to Genesis, the third chapter, it's on page 3 in your pew Bible. If you brought your own Bible, it should be pretty early on in your book, or we need to talk afterwards. You know the beautiful story in Breshit, Genesis, as we would say, that God creates all things and he makes this garden and he puts Adam and Eve in there and he breathes into Adam his breath and puts his mouth over his nose and mouth, almost like you do uh, CPR on an infant. And he breathes Ruach Elohim, the breath of God, and Adam becomes Nefesh, the Hebrew, a living soul. And you know how the serpent tricked them and they sinned. And when they rebelled against God, when they stepped out across that cliff, The consequences were death. Look at verse 16 as God speaks to the woman. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Pause. Remember they had mutual dominion. Male was not over female here. Part of the consequence of this is that now it will be a change. And to the man he said... Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree that I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall leave it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. You are dust and to dust you shall return. The most horrible words perhaps ever written of what happened. Before God, when he had created the world and in a system that you and I do not understand, but everybody knows innately that when someone dies as a human, something is intrinsically wrong. Someone, an older gentleman was sharing with me in World War II that he remembered in part of the D-Day forces when they pushed further into France that he sat down to eat and he looked over and he didn't know there was a horrible smell and there was this rotting carcass of a deer and the rotting carcass of a German soldier. And he said what struck him was the difference about his feeling about this one death compared to the other. Something inside of us tells us that death should not be this way. Thanatology is a view of why do we die? And when God created Adam and Eve in this garden, in a world that we can't relate to, there was no death. 
Aging will tell you this year was the question that God's DNA so perfectly replicate RNA that there was no aging process? Was it because there was no radiation, no free radical? Who knows? God made a great system. Just like if, you know, we quit helping for like a week, how the environment gets really nice for a while. God had a perfect system within us. But God allowed freedom. And this freedom, they became slaves of the lower laws. The consequences of death. Death is separation. First separated from God. They were hiding, remember, in the garden. And God said, Adam, where are you? He said, I heard you. And I hid myself where I was naked. And God says, who told you you were naked? Did you do what I told you you shouldn't do? Separate from God. Then they started to be separating from each other. God said, what have you done? And as a good husband, he said, the woman whom thou gavest to me. And they start blaming each other. And so they're separated from each other. And finally, as they keep falling, that the spirit separates from the body. Greeks looked at a duality that went on almost like a dualism. You were a spirit, but you had a body. Kind of like the ghost in the machine mentality. That is not the biblical understanding. You are not only a spirit. You have a body and they are intrinsically together. But all of a sudden this death, this weird separation is that for a moment we step across. And God in his great love began the process of reunifying the great redemption. The ultimate death separation is where everybody is resurrected. Everybody gets a new body whether you like it or not. Where did you get that? I'm glad you asked. Turn with me over to John and to the sixth or fifth chapter on page 866 in your pew Bible. And as Jesus is addressing his critics for working on the Sabbath on Shabbat, they said, what authority do you have to do this? Why couldn't you wait till Monday morning? And he says, because I have authority over life and I have authority over death. Let's read together verses 25 through 29 together out loud of the fifth chapter. Very truly I tell you, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not be astonished at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in their graves will hear His voice and will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Everybody gets a new body. Where you spend it is a choice that we are all making. The separation of the spirit leaving the body. I have been... I held my brother, my older brother, as he died. I've been with many people in that last breath. And any of you who have too, you know this sense of when they are gone is not just because they quit moving or breathing or because the mandible muscles start to relax and their eyes half close and their jaw drops. You know they're gone because you sense that the spirit is gone from that person. That is a state God never intended. And it is a temporary state. Someday it is going to be reversed back to the wholeness that we all long, a perfect body. Some to everlasting life, some to everlasting condemnation. And the question is, well, why does this take place? Well, this great drama before us, and all of life has living and dying in it. You feel that? You've got to let go of one era to join the next. 
You got to say goodbye to high school, been able to go on later to work or to college. You got to leave early adulthood to go into middle adulthood. You have to sometimes let go of old friends at business to start a new business. Sometimes old ministry, sometimes letting go. And this is all reflecting this redemption that is going on, this separating and attaching throughout life. And so God in His love, though, would not leave us to be where we were at in that state. He sent Christ into this world to help us. So what happens when I die, Pastor? All right, I understand where this whole death thing came from, but what about me? That's my favorite topic, too, by the way. I like what Woody Allen said. He says he doesn't mind dying. He just doesn't want to be there when it happens. And a lot of us are just kind of saying, well, what exactly takes place? Americans, by the way, have two great fears. They fear public speaking and they fear death. I relate to that because I feel like I die every time I'm up front uh, speaking. But what did the uh, Rabbi Saul of Tarsus? Well, first, though, he spoke speaking back of Yeshua of Jesus. Turn with me over to Luke, the 16th chapter. There's five verses or chapters we're going to look at this morning. That's on page 851 in your pew Bible. Luke 16, verses 19. We're going to be reading more scripture than a pastor on espresso. Okay. This is not called a parable. It's, it's parabolic in its form because no parable does Jesus ever use an actual name. So we don't know what to do this. This is Jesus speaking. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. And even the dogs would come and lick his sores. Pause. So here's this rich man. He's eating great. And this guy outside would love to eat just his garbage. And the dog's licking him. And as a Jew, he was unclean ceremonially as well as this horrible... Jesus is a great storyteller. Okay, verse 22. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. Pause. One thing the Bible tells you, death does not change you. It fixes the direction you're going. You're either going more in the direction of God and growing more into His image, or you're falling farther and farther away from yourself. Death doesn't do a U-turn for anybody. Death is the final welding of the direction we're going. Look what he's doing. Here's this guy. He thought Lazarus was a slob. He's in torment, and he says, Abraham, send him down to take care of my problem. He hasn't changed at all. And this idea that we think that all of a sudden when we stand before and we see the real creatures inside people will change, there's going to be no changing. There's going to be a revealing. And that's why you and I are called not to judge in the sense of only God knows. I've told you before, keep using it, the three surprises of heaven. Who's there? You'll go, wow. Who's not, who's not there? And you go, wow. And that you're there. Those are the three big surprises. <laughs> but what Christ is making very clear is that this death is a very serious thing. And he is in torment. Is God tor- cruel? No. God cannot be cruel by definition. He does Cruelty is where you're punishing somebody because you're mad or you're just a mean-spirited person. Is God just? Absolutely. Absolutely. We've got to quit serving the God we'd like to serve and serve the God who is there. 
is why he says, don't you take vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay them. And when I repay, when there is justice, it will be thorough. So here he's in agony. He says, come down. Verse 25. Abraham said, child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things. And Lazarus and like men are evil. But now he's comforted here and you're in agony. Besides all this, between you and us a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so and no one can cross from there to us. Pause for a moment. There is this fixing. There's this no growing across these directions, as I said. So then he says next here in verse 27. So then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may warn them so they may also come to this place of torment. Pause. Everybody in hell is missions-minded. If there's anything left of goodness in them. Go warn my brothers. Verse 29, Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moshe and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. He's obviously foreshadowing what he is going to do. This idea that when we die, is first of all, we instantaneously, when you breathe your last, Scripture always calls it sleep. I always tell people when I do funerals, what did Jesus say at funerals? And he's no help because every time he showed up, they became resurrections. Because <laughs> the prince of life could not be in the presence of death in that sense. But the sense of sleep, I go to awaken him from his sleep. The girl is not dead. When he, before he says, Tabitha Kumi, little lamb, get up. He says, but she is asleep. Why sleep? Because sleep on the outside looks like the person is passive, but inside they can be very active with dreams. I believe when you and I breathe our last, in that moment, life becomes more real, not less real. You start to see colors and hear sounds and glory and wonder. I think a lot of NDEs or bogus near-death experiences, you know, they're just corny. It's what they are. But some of them, piecing the dots together, you think, and notice it is universally positive almost for everybody. And I totally believe that. Even the lost. You know why? Because the judgment hasn't taken place. But to slip into this presence of eternity is a total rush. Now, this is without a body yet. Our loved ones and stuff who have died do not have bodies right now. And so this question of, well, then why in the world does God allow this? Well, because, as C.S. Lewis quoting Aquinas, a great statement, there is nothing in heaven that any of the lost would desire. We have this picture that all of a sudden we have all these missed desires. And Jesus, he speaks about weeping and gnashing and agony of teeth. And this horrible thing, he says, lose an eye, lose an arm, do anything. You do not want to go there. You do not want to go there. And it's like drinking salt water forever and ever. The sense of unable to quench their thirst. Could they get out? Yes, if there was a question of their hearts ever changing. But their hearts never will. And so God in His justice is letting this take place. Not capriciously or angrily, but I believe with a tear in His eye, God will say, as Lewis again said, heaven is where we say, thy will be done. Because anybody who knows God knows His way is best. And God with a tear says to the rebel, thy will be done. You want it, you've got it. And this is a, this whole question of why would He do that? Because He has to do that. Now, there's this sense of we think we know people. 
and at funerals where I do bury people. And by the way, I've never buried anybody who went to hell. Every family member and loved one, and of course only the Lord knows, will say, well, we know that uh, Uncle Joe's in heaven. They go, well, did Joe believe in God? No, nah, he, he hated Christians and all that. Did Joe ever speak of spiritual things? Nah, nah, he just mocked it. But we know he's in heaven. You go, well, why do you know that? Well, because he was a good guy. And they're being very sincere. It's not a question of goodness. It's a question of the creature inside. I had a youth pastor back in Colorado, brought kids to Christ, just loving, sweet, married, wonderful guy on the outside. Seven years after he left our church, he came back arrested by the Colorado Bureau of Investigation for his sexually abusing 12 of our junior hires. Now, this guy, if you met him, you would think he was a wonderful guy, and the things he did to these kids was unbelievable. You didn't know it. I didn't know it. God knows it. I've had people in my house before, friends. And I reached out to them, and in my house, they were stealing my money. And I was trying to be nice to them. Well, now you talk to them eye to eye, you'd never know that. God knows the heart. You and I don't. And when people say, how could I be in heaven if Uncle Joe's in hell? It's like you'd be thinking, well, you know, we're having a fun time, streets of gold, drinking our daiquiris, but, you know, he's miserable down there. It's not that situation because you'll finally see the creature that's revealed there. And as they shake their fist at God's face to the very end, we'll realize it could have been no different. It's why in The Great Divorce, that wonderful book, that this is the suburbs either of heaven or hell. For those who know Christ and that His power has been released in their life and good keeps getting better. In the midst of this broken world, and you haven't even done a nose hit yet off of the joys that God is waiting Human eye has never seen nor ear heard nor in the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. But those who say, you know, I'm going to party with my friends in hell, there's no parties in hell. It is a loss of everything that we long for. And that side of just falling and collapsing like a black hole further and further in on ourselves. But the story of the Bible is not about those who reject God. And Jesus said, therefore I tell you, you enter in by the narrow gate. For wide is the road, and easy is the road to lead to destruction, and there are many who follow it. But narrow is the gate, and hard is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. He's saying this is worth it. Well, what does, why does the Lord do this? What is this thing about getting this new body? Well, one more passage. Oh, it's actually two I like. Turn with me first over to First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians 5, page 940 in your pew Bible. And the, the rabbi Saul, the apostle Paul is speaking, actually on page 939 on the fifth chapter, verse 1. For we know that if this earthly tent we live in, speaking of his body is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. There's a perfect body. If indeed we have to be taken off, we will not be found naked. Then he's jumping down to verse 6. So we're always confident, even though we know that while we're at home in this body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we do have confidence, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may receive recompense for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, what he is saying is, well... Mark, you're just trying to scare us. I hope. 
I don't mean manipulate. I mean just like when a doctor says, you know, quit smoking, you're going to die of cancer. Just like when your parole officer says, quit stealing, you're going to go back to jail. God likewise says, quit going this direction, come to me. It's not this punitive, wrathful God who gets his kicks out of harming. It's this consequence. And Paul says, you know, as long as we're in this body, we're apart from the Lord. He said, I would rather be at home with the Lord. In the twinkling of an eye, he says in 1 Corinthians, when you breathe your last, that you're ushered into his presence. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. The Jewish understanding of death, the Sheol here and Gehenom for the wicked and paradise over here. Now, when you and I die, we don't go to a holding tank. We go instantly to be in the presence of God. Why? Because our sin has been atoned for. This is something that is unbelievable. It's already paid for. And now this perfect holy God can allow us into his presence with a celebrating. Are the grandstands of heaven watching us? Yeah, cheering us on. But frankly, what goes on here I think is boring compared to what they're experiencing. This is the battleground, no doubt about it. And that's why Christ says that he will give to you. And I got to say something. A lot of churches do a lot of great things. But they remind me of the University of Central Florida. How is that, Pastor? Run that one by me. Did you just see they just put up a new 50,000-seat stadium? I forget how many hundred million this thing was. They have a little problem. You know what they forgot to put in? Any drinking fountains. You can't get water in this stadium. And people are passing out. Central Florida's a little warm. You know, next time, note, note to self. Drinking fountains would help. And I know a lot of churches do a lot of great things, and the evangelicals abandoned stupidly for so long, just saved their soul. Christ has told us to go into this world and to change it and to help the poor and to stand for justice. But do not forget the living water. That's what it's about, and that's what our mission here is about. Amen? And as we go out, as we love people, and to share with them and to tell, that's the difference. But the thing that is waiting is this glory. One last passage. Okay, turn over to Revelation 21. I told you we'd run out of space here. Page 1007 in your pew Bible. So Jesus speaks of this resurrection. The Apostle Paul speaks of it in the joy. And here John, as he gets this weird imagery, this apocalyptic literature, kind of like a political cartoon, both real and symbolic, but authoritative. And this is what he sees. Oh, we got to read this together. 21, 1 through uh, verse 5 together. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be His peoples, and God Himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. And the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. In the Old Testament, the heavens... Hashemayim, the heavens, can sometimes mean the clouds, the atmosphere. Sometimes it's like the solar system, the galaxy, or the presence of God. In Greek, the word uranus, it means to be in the presence of God. And it's not like we're on 
clouds playing harp, some bad Hollywood or medieval understanding of that. It's this sense of the joy and the adventure. And who knows? God is just warming up. You are going to be given a perfect body. Paul said he will transform our lowly bodies to glorious bodies like his own by the power with which he subjects all things to himself. In Philippians. What's our perfect body look like? Well, whatever age it is. I can tell you it's not 53, by the way. And they say this age when you bend over tying your shoe, you think, is there anything else I need as long as I'm down here? You know, uh... And that's why we don't like aging. Because not only do you feel bad and look bad, but the self-God is crying out, I'm dying. I'm not in control anymore. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. We will be given perfect bodies. And you'll be the perfect you. Sin is called leprosy in the Old Testament because leprosy numbs everything. You lose your nerve endings. You get gray and warped. Original people are the righteous people. And I don't mean churchianity, you know, where you're everybody's put in a mold. I mean people who really walk with the Lord. Have you noticed how boringly monotonous the crowd is? I mean, it's stunning what everybody says. And they tell you, you've got to measure up and look like this. You have power and dreams and abilities that have been given by God. And he hasn't even popped those, the cork on those things yet. You'll be more original. And our relationships will be healed. People will love you and care and let you know them. Can you imagine a world where the only thing someone wanted out of you was your best and the most joy they had was in blessing you? Can you imagine that from these people? I can't either. But God says, and for me, that right now in those state we can't, but God says I'm going to pull this off in the cosmos itself someday. We will be learning the immeasurable riches of His kindness and grace towards us in Jesus. There'll never come a day where you say, Oh, I finally understand everything. God is outside of time and space. We're going to keep learning and growing. Like I said, He is just warming up with what is waiting there. And someday for all of us, when death comes, and death will come for every one of us, unless Christ returns in our life. And when He comes to the door and knocks, and you feel His cold, ugly breath on your shoulder. Don't be afraid. And the closer you get to him, you find out he's not the grim reaper. He is a broken servant of God for now, who will someday be done away with. And so we don't understand, and God understands that we don't, and he comforts us. Our son Paul, when he was a young boy, had such terrible asthma. We almost lost him a couple of times. And I remember one time he was having a horrible attack, and we were rushing him to the emergency room, and and he fell asleep in the back of his car. And anybody that has kids, you know, when they fall asleep, when you wake them up and you're even taking them back to their room, how they're screaming and kicking, leave me alone. You know, I very much, my children do that, so I would leave them in the snow. But as we <laughs> were taking Paul to the hospital, that we took him, I remember his crying, and no, what are you doing? And as the doctor was taking him away from his parents, and it looked horrible. But as they put him into the tent and the great medication and his lungs got life bath into them and he felt good and he went to sleep. And the morning when we went to see him, Carolyn stayed there all night with him. Of course, I'm called to go home. But as she stayed there and walked in and there she is. There's Paul. He's going, this place is fun, running around and in her arms again. He had no idea when he was sick and being taken away. This was for him. And as we lay our loved ones in His hands, every day, we're not getting farther from them. 
We're getting closer to the day when we'll be gathered together forever. Let me ask you this morning, where do you think your future lies? Well, Mark, I, you know, I just don't know about all this. Well, what do you know about? And what do you know about the peace and the confidence that you have? You think you're going to do enough good works that they'll outbalance your This is not a question of balance. This is a question about perfection because we're dealing with a perfect God. You have that sense of peace that you say that, Lord, I know I belong to him. Have you forgot to tell others that they don't need to be afraid, that there is a God who's love? And are you walking around, you have the joy to know, act like you're forgiven because you are, and that death itself will simply usher us into his presence and someday... There will be no more crying or pain or tears. For the former had passed away, and he who sat on the throne said, Behold, take a look. I make all things new. Let's pray, shall we? Right now, with all of our heads bowed and all of our eyes closed, comes the time when we respond to the proclaimed word. And if you've been aware of another voice besides mine that's been tugging at your heart and you sense it's the Spirit of the Lord. And you know that you don't have this peace and this confidence. All you need to do is to say, Lord, I don't understand everything. Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears and opens the door, I will come in and live with them and they with me. The door's on the inside and you just simply, not in an emotional way, but in an honest way, say, Oh Christ, I believe when you died that my sin was paid for by your blood, Passover lamb, and that I believe that you are alive and that you are coming back. I don't understand all of it, and it kind of scares me, but Lord, I let go of myself. I repent, and I ask and invite you to come into my life right now, and you do that, and you'll begin a relationship with him that will last forever. Thank you, God, for this great peace that we have. God, we long for the day when sickness and sorrow and evil is done away with. Until then, God, you sent us into this busted-up mess of a world that you love. I pray that we'd be so filled with the love of Christ and the hope and the peace, the Lord, it will spill out into other people's lives. And now as we come before you with our tithes and our offerings, receive these of our sacrifice of praise. And may many new names be written in the Lamb's book of life because of how we trusted you. Maranatha, Lord, send him back soon. For his sake we pray. Amen.